Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, March 19th, 2023. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements, is now available and can be purchased wherever finer books are sold. Peter has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer, an essayist, and a producer. He is the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Any uh, any updates on our Jerry Orbach uh, Broadway show at 54 Below coming up on July 24th? It'll be... We'll be complaining about the heat by then actually i have a major update now that you ask oh good what both of jerry orbach's sons are going uh, to be in the show oh, oh that's wonderful. in the show wow oh that's mm. wonderful yes yes oh that day try to remember now i thank you for uh, referring to me as a producer but i uh, actually maybe you guys can help me out with that what do you call y- y- yourself if you put together a show and direct it but it's not with your money. <laughs> you, I call that smart. <laughs> That's smart. What's the, what's the line? Put your, your money in the show. <laughs> <laughs> I've been the former <laughs> oh, yeah. where I've had my own money and, and lost it all. So, yeah, I call you smart. Well, it may be smart. I was just wondering if there's another word for it. But I guess I'm well, the I mean, over at, I mean, over at Disney Theatricals, uh, it, it's not the, you know... Well, Disney that's true. is putting all the money in, and there are producers for their shows. So that's true. Yeah. So I, I guess producers raise money rather than uh, invest their own. Usually, so um, that's what that's the the norm that they it's right. raise rather than yeah, 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 invest. Yeah. So yeah. So as a it's result, funny. We were my, my my wife and I were talking about this uh, this uh, terrible situation with Alec Baldwin and that movie mm-hmm. that he was in where somebody was oh, shot, yeah. uh, and where Alec. Uh, accidentally shot somebody on the set because he didn't know the gun was loaded. Uh, and he's being held to account because he was, quote-unquote, a producer on the movie. Right. And we were talking about how mm-hmm. very famous and, mm-hmm. and uh, well-known people get named producers on projects that they're actually, you know, not in the yeah, traditional right. sense of pr- producer. Yes. And, yes. and we have that, yes. you know, on Broadway right now, uh, you know, all the the hundreds of people above a title – uh, are, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. some people who wrote, mm-hmm. you know, $25,000, $50,000 checks mm-hmm. and really had no uh, decision-making mm-hmm. ability in the production, and, and they're called producers. Uh, and then other so. people get it for other reasons. I noticed yeah. that uh, on the West Side Story uh, movie remake that one of the executive producers, I think was his title, was David Saint. And and that was uh, really just sure. because uh, of his connection to the Arthur Lawrence estate, I'm sure. Uh, mm. So some people mm-hmm. get it as a kind of a perk. Yeah. Uh, I think the the terms producer has almost become meaningless <laughs> because it can mean so many different things. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it really is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want, before we get into everything, I wanted to uh, wish a happy birthday to all of us because uh, Matt Timonini oh. pointed out to me that uh, we just started our 14th year of This Week on My Broadway. My God, really? Wow. 14 years of this. Yeah. Wow. Some might call us uh, 
Some might call us a lot of things, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And have. And, and, have, and, and have, yeah. So, <laughs> some might call us crazy, some might call mm. us persistent, but Just here we are. Just don't call us late for dinner. That's yeah, right. Not late for dinner, especially on pasta night. Yeah. <laughs> So first up, let's uh, get right into uh, our review section where Peter and Michael got over to City Center to see the newest production of Dear World. So, Michael, why don't you get us started with this? Mm, well, let me say, first of all, that uh, this is exactly what Encore should be doing. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a return to their original mission mm-hmm. to uh, to do staged concert versions of shows that um, were either not successful initially or have fallen into obscurity and also often shows that are considered problematic in one way or another, but they are still deemed worthy of presentation, probably in terms of the scores uh, primarily. Uh, so I think that uh, they uh, and I don't necessarily mind um, that they have veered from that mission in, in recent years, uh, not so recent years, uh, because uh, there are, first of all, there are only so many of those shows uh, that you would want to actually mount again. And also it's, uh, you know, you always get to hear a full orchestra playing the show so even if it's something that has been revived and is likely to be revived on broadway or elsewhere um you're going to have that going for you which you probably won't have in another situation uh so i you know i i think that's i think that's fine uh but um i my reaction to this, uh, I guess the general reaction has been kind of rapturous and joyous, but not for me, uh, primarily because the show itself, to me, I really, really don't like it. I just don't respond to the whole sensibility of the of the source material, I think, uh, to begin with, I would say. I, I did once see a production of The Mad Woman of Chaillot by Jean Giraudoux, and I uh, just don't respond to the sensibility of it and the characters and the plot. Uh, there's nothing in it that I really <laughs> respond to it uh, other than the, um, I guess maybe the general theme, uh, which is, this is one of those uh, pieces that tell us that sometimes the quote unquote crazy people in this world are more sane than the normal people. Uh, other examples of that are the King of Hearts, uh, which mm-hmm. is another French. Uh, isn't that a French from a French? Yeah, yeah. yeah. indeed. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and right, and then also, of course, anyone can whistle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are others. Um, there are well, um, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Uh, might be sure. arguably put in that mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. category as well. Uh, so I think that's a very valid thing uh, to say. You know, w- with. You know, with it, you know, you have to, you can't just make that broad statement. You have to, you have to kind of fill it out. Um, But I don't like the way it's presented here. Uh, This is about a woman named Aurelia uh, living in Paris in, uh, I guess it's supposed to be the 40s. And she is called the Mad Woman of Chaillot. And she is, she is kind of dotty in many ways. She has her little quirks. Um, She has, for example, this thing that, all men's names change every hour. So at uh, 11 o'clock, everyone is called 
Roderick, and then at noon, everyone is called Maurice or whatever. <laughs> uh, that's just one example of of, of her. Uh, that she has two other Mad Women friends uh, who have their their quirks as well. One of them has an imaginary dog. Uh, who appears and reappears. Uh, but anyway, so she uh, becomes involved in this situation because there are these horribly corrupt officials uh, of the town of, of Paris who um, have discovered that oil is is uh, located beneath the streets of Paris. And, and in particular, there seems to be a, a huge deposit of it between this cafe, uh, underneath this cafe where Aurelia uh, and her, and her chums hang out. And so the uh, solution of the, um, of these officials is that they're going to blow up uh, the cafe in order to get to the oil. Now, why they should have to do that is another question, <laughs> but I, I won't, I, I don't know enough about, that feel to get into that. Uh, so that's the plot, but it's so, to me, it is just so whimsical and so twee. And uh, it's got this fantastical French sensibility that uh, can be okay in small doses, but uh, also when it's, when it's well handled and not when it isn't there. I mean, there's even a mime in this thing for heaven's sake, <laughs> you know, I mean, literally, <laughs> did we have to have that clat, that cliche? Uh, it, you know, I, I just, I cringe uh, whenever, whenever that happens. Um, the show. And then on top of all that, uh, the fact that I don't respond to that whole sensibility, many people felt that Jerry Herman was, a very poor choice to musicalize this piece because he certainly is great when he's in his element, but uh, he, he, his music does not really seem to have the kind of style and sensibility required for this. As far as I'm concerned, I do think that for a few songs, he really probably worked very hard and, and did manage to muster that. Um, once one of those songs is I don't want to know. Uh, and there are a few others, um, but uh, let's see what. Um, and I was beautiful is another song uh, that Aurelia sings that I think, uh, f- seem to fit into the to the situation, but then there are many that don't. And uh, Herman himself also, on top of all that, he claimed that he wanted to write a chamber musical, and he was pressured to make a more brassy, show busy Broadway kind of a of a show. Which I mean, what what else did they expect to put on Broadway in 1969? You know, I mean, I, I think they maybe should have had a little more discussion about that. Um, I wonder if he actually wanted it to open off broadway i mean that would have seemed to have been the way to go if that's the kind of show that he wanted um but anyway he also claimed that he was pressured to write the title song which is a kind of an uptune uh to sort of go along with mame and hello dolly uh uh and uh so everyone well not everyone but people seem to have been at cross purposes with this musical to begin with and i think it showed and it it really it only ran let's see i have it right here first preview december 18th 1968 uh 
and closing date May 31st, 1969. So it wasn't a you know one week flop, but it it was not with us very long, even with the phenomenal Angela Lansbury in the uh in the central role. So that's the all of that about the show itself. I think the this Encore's production was excellent overall, uh, aside from a couple of bits of miscasting. But Donna Murphy is so great as Aurelia that you should see this show, if only for her. Um, but she, uh, although they have far less to do, her two main cohorts, the other two mad women, played by Andrea Burns and Anne Harada, also just fantastic. Uh, and then you do have that orchestra conducted by Mary Mitchell Campbell uh, to give the score its full due. I mean, however you feel about it, you're probably not going to hear it better than you do here. Um, so I, um, a lot of people seem to respond really, really well. Uh, the re- reviews, um, I believe, were extremely positive. And the audience, it was one, of, I got the feeling it was one of those situations where the audience went in like determined to uh, really love it because they had been given permission to do so and told that it was great. Uh, so there were lots of lots of really big laughs at lines that I didn't find especially funny <laughs> and things like that. Um, uh, and uh, there was some a bit of virtue signaling at the end of the show uh, after Aurelia comes up with her solution uh, to this problem. And uh, figures out a, a, a way to get rid of all these officials. Um, she has a line to the effect of, there's nothing wrong with the world that a group of smart women can't correct. And the audience went, whoa, yeah. You know, just the incredible applause. And 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 I think there's a lot of truth to that, <laughs> to, to that sentiment. But, uh, you know, one might also cite um, Ava Perone and Golda Meir. Uh, so it's not... <laughs> It's not a completely true. Um, uh, so that was my very mixed reaction to Dear World. But again, I, I'm so glad that Encores did it. It's exactly, exactly what they should be doing. All right, Peter, what'd you think? Uh, Dear World was one of the first shows I ever reviewed for my college newspaper. <laughs> and uh, the reason I bring that up has to do with the fact that the point I made more than anything else was something that uh, Michael disagrees with. I thought Jerry Herman ex- really, really extended himself beautifully, stretched himself tremendously in writing the music for this show. Uh, I think the ballads are lovely beyond belief. And um, I don't want to know which is <laughs> a valse macabre. Um, is terrific as well. So I thought he really did the job. Um, tremendously I would agree well. on the I ballad. Will... I would agree on the ballads. Yeah, I, uh, that yeah. was really something, and and there were a lot of them. So, um, so I think, and Phil Lang really helped out tremendously. It uh, it was very nice from the very outset in the overture when you heard a harp, which you don't hear in musicals anymore, <laughs> um, and uh, a concertina. There's talk in the show about the concertina being a, a passe, but uh, it does show up a lot in the show, and um, I think that's part of the irony. There's, there's a lot of irony here. Charles Strauss often says there are four things that people need to do in life. They need food, shelter, clothing, and fixing everybody else's musical. <laughs> and um, certainly I'm going to uh, make my attempt here. Uh, because I think um, that what they really needed when they were in Boston, which is where I saw the show, 
was Jerome Robbins to come in and give the advice he essentially gave to Stephen Sondheim and funny thing happened in the way of the forum. There, uh, as I'm sure most of our listeners know, Robbins came into Funny Thing and said, you need a a song indicating that they're going to see comedy tonight. And as a result, it was comedy tonight. What you need in this show is a song that essentially says fantasy tonight, Mm. because this really is a fantasy. The way she gets rid of the men doesn't really solve everything, and you can't expect it to. And I still remember, (laughs) I didn't know the play before I saw the musical in 1968, but I am telling you that uh, even then as as a young man, I I thought, what a simplistic solution. This is ridiculous. This doesn't solve anything. Um, What she does, she opens up a a sewer and manhole type thing, and they go in, and that's supposed to be the end of it. Are you kidding me? So that's why you really need to establish at the beginning that it's a fantasy. Now, I know that 11 o'clock numbers are not charm songs usually, but I think here's my other suggestion that Dear World would work wonderfully at the end of the show as a charm song. Bear with me. I would have in, in, in the actual musical, Aurelia herself only gets rid of the men. I think the three women, since we've come to know them, and there's a very ambitious piece of music with the tea party. I mean, you, so many times you have one person singing and the next person singing, and then they sing together each of their songs, you know, but here you have three. Um, and putting that all together could not have been easy. But anyway, given the fact that we have these three eccentric women, I'd like to see them all in conjunction get rid of the men and then sing dear world each with having a line and each trying to top each other with um little observations because some of the lyrics are very clunky if sung in earnest mm-hmm. in earnest and they are sung in earnest uh by a a, a group of parisians uh really ironically enough is not one of them in this version she was originally um the, the person who started dear world the song but uh here she's not um uh, it's sung by a group of parisians and it's so arch when you have lyrics like um you've got to save your own hide world um and one about get off your crutches and those things would play better if sung by these mad women Mm -hmm. you know and and they were trying to uh, wouldn't it be funny you know you just said that but i can say something funny too and i can say something funnier and if they each did that it would i think would be very endearing and i think this we'd get away with the song um, Jerry Herman told me that he didn't like the song, but I think if it were done in that context, I think we'd all enjoy it. It would be whimsical at the end of a show that has been established as a fantasy. Mm. So I think that would be really a very good idea. But of course, um, uh, it's it's always easy to fix everybody else's show. Anyway, uh, Donna Murphy, phenomenal, 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 as I knew she would be. Um, did anybody have any doubt that she was going to be wonderful? I mean, I, I can't imagine anybody did. I first discovered her. I mean, yes, I saw they're they're playing a song, but I first discovered her in um, Birds of Paradise, an off-Broadway show, where I thought she gave the best featured performance of the year, so um, I wasn't surprised. Very nice, another wonderful Herman song is Each Tomorrow Morning, which, um, trivia time, uh, was the title of the show for a while, Each Tomorrow Morning. So, um, lovely song. Uh, It's interesting that Martin Charnin um, is not the only one who believed in tomorrow. Obviously, um, Jerry Herman did too, though, of course, he limited it to the morning. So um, we have a cheer-up dance, um, I think, which is um, great fun there. Isn't it interesting that this is yet another matchmaker for Jerry Herman? Because um, the first one was in Milk and Honey, his first show. 
Uh, Clara Weiss is uh, very interested in making matches and one for herself, too, for that matter. Um, needless to say, uh, Dolly Gallagher Levi is a matchmaker. Um, but here she is, and she's uh, trying to get two kids together who um, do fall in love at first sight. More on love at first sight in this podcast a little later. I'm going to make a point about that, about something else entirely. But anyway, um, uh, but there's some nice lines about being in the exact place when your life is happening that is important to be there. Um, p- people still seek happiness, don't they? You know, I'm, uh, I don't want to know that song. Well, it's really curious about that song. And I don't know anybody minds this. I've never heard anybody mind it. Nothing rhymes. Nothing tries to. This is not a case of uh, the type of non-rhymes we get today. I don't mean that. I mean, uh, there's, no, there's no rhyme in the show, uh, in the song. So um, it's also interesting uh, to me that um, we have the, the lyric, if music is no longer lovely. And I think Jerry Herman was <laughs> talking about um, what's what had been happening uh, lately. I like lines like, you've given up on giving up. You know, that's a good line. Uh, mm-hmm. So um, I think that's uh, quite good too. Um, some of the songs, you know, in, in a way, I should have been so surprised that um, he was uh, um, capable of writing lovely ballads because, after all, there's there's plenty in Milk and Honey. It's just that after Dolly and Mame, we just uh, came to think of him as a razzmatazz guy. So, um, so anyway, I uh, I find it interesting that. He anticipated the song in 70 Girls, 70, Coffee in a Cardboard Cup, because there's a song about garbage. <laughs> and the song about garbage is there, there used to be a time when you could tell from people's garbage that they were high-class people and they, they, they were living in a, in a nice way and they were educated. There's talk about Chaucer. There's talk about Othello um, in this song. And now people's garbage you know, has just <laughs> gone down the drain. Um, so um, the show is an indictment of the 1%. And in that way, it spoke to us very, very much i mean you could hear the audience mm, that type of thing um but the difference between jerry herbert and steven sondheim who of course famously went to battle um in 1984 when lacage uh, uh was up against sunday in the park uh, more about sunday in the park later but anyway um it's funny how, you know the sensibilities are so different here's jerry herman writing a song called one person can change the world and yes Sondheim agrees with him in Assassins, but the way that he's talking about <laughs> changing the world is not by opening up a sewer and having people go in it. No, uh, that's, uh, that's a very different thing. Um, so, uh, yes, I think this show has tremendous second act trouble. Absolutely. It doesn't remotely have the power of the first act. And um, people were, um, were, I think, in their own fantasy land when afterwards I heard, this should move to Broadway. This yeah. never succeed on Broadway. Yeah. Not today. No, it's not the type of show that goes today, sad to say. Um, One interesting thing, Michael mentioned that um, the first preview was December 18th and the closing was May 31st. Yes, but what's interesting here is that that first preview was December 18th and the final preview was February 5th. It played 45 previews. They really worked very hard to get it right. Joe Layton was the third director, um, at least. Um, And um, so... But what was funny that year at the Tony Awards, remember Alexander Cohen, who produced Dear World, was also the producer of the Tony Awards back then. So anyway, his first line that year at the Tony Awards in June was, 
Welcome to another preview of Dear World. So, <laughs> so is that famous for being, uh, you know, uh, of course, compared to Spider-Man, you know, that, that doesn't mean much. But uh, at, at that time, uh, it really was um, quite uh, unorthodox to have that many previews. Anyway, what can I say? Do a fantasy song. <laughs> do a charm song at the end and you'd have a better time at dear world but boy yes that audience was very appreciative to be there and uh, they wanted to love it from the just just it was sort of an endorsement of the fact that michael was saying earlier about this is the type of show um encores could should do mm-hmm. and that was the validation that was going on in that house i think more than anything else yeah, uh, if if we don't support this dear world, we're not going to get more dear worlds in the future. And in terms of like, uh, what are people suggesting? Uh, I don't think a day goes by and talking Broadway that I don't see somebody make a suggestion for uh, for uh, encores. Uh, usually, they put three of them that they want to see. So, uh, so really, there's there is a, a some sort of audience out there. I have no idea how big an audience it is, but there certainly was um, a, a packed house um, when I was there on Friday night. So um, there's still a few of us left who want to see musicals of this vintage. Well, I think your suggestion about the title song is excellent. Oh, good. We should have mentioned that this version of the show that the Encores is doing is a revised version. And, and well, it's based on a revised version. And then there were further revisions, including um, putting back in one or two songs that had been cut, correct? Yep. Yeah. yeah uh, and also, uh, I should have mentioned that Josh Rhodes is the director choreographer, and I think he did a, a wonderful job. And we should, we should not um, fail to mention Brooks Schmanskis, who did an <laughs> amazing job as the main villain. Uh, mm-hmm. a, a lot of people seem to uh, notice that he was doing some Trumpisms up there. Mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily notice that, but he it was really quite terrific. He should have had a red tie. (laughs) (laughs) So um, City Center Encores, uh, it's just running this weekend, March 15th through the 19th. Last performance is this afternoon. Um, But as Michael said, that this is, uh, you know, core to what City Center is doing and should be doing. And also we have uh, Mary Mitchell Campbell that's the new uh, music director of the uh, Encore series. Uh, we had quite an article in the New York Times about her uh, this week. I'll link to that in the show notes, so you can check that out as well. Uh, but we had some other talk about coming out of Encores, Michael, right? Yeah, I I just thought it was gossip, but apparently she came right out and said it in that article uh, that they are going, planning to do Love Life uh, next season, which had been postponed it was supposed to happen right before the pandemic and then that that didn't happen uh and then also city of angels which i know is top of, of james's list <laughs> among yes. many other people so uh yeah i guess so more more of more of the same you know is what is i mean more of more of that is what we want <laughs> yeah Absolutely. All right, Michael, you got downtown to New York Theater Workshop to see how to defend yourself. Uh, well, what, why don't you give your – I have a question for you, but what, oh, okay. give your review first, and then we'll get to my question. Well, this is a very interesting play by Liliana Padilla. Uh, here's an interesting credit. Co-directed by three people. 
Oh, that was my um, question. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rachel Chavkin, Liliana Padilla, and Steph Paul. Um, not sure what that's all about, but uh, whatever. Um, and it's about uh, a group of college students in a uh, self-defense class uh, th- that has been formed in response to the fact that a woman on campus had recently been raped uh raped and attacked and she's currently in the hospital recovering so everyone's of course very very concerned about that and um this group is formed of uh obviously women uh but then they also um enlist two frat boys uh to come in and and help them with the you know with the self-defense moves and it's uh, what's so interesting about this to me this play is that there was a, actually a lot of humor in it um and you can imagine that that would happen if you um have these two guys come in you know per- portraying the bad guys and it must be a very awkward situation to be in uh and i think that a lot that um, a lot of the humor came from that awkwardness, but um, and and was really natural for that reason. But at the same time, it, it makes you feel a little odd that you're um, laughing because the subject matter is is so deadly serious. Uh, so that was just a, a, um, a response that I had. I, I wonder if if uh, a lot of other people feel the same as I did. Uh, I, I wasn't prepared to have that response. Um, and uh, there's, uh, but there is a lot of interesting discussion as well um, uh, about consent, you know, what, what consent actually means when you, when, when a man and woman are together uh, consent for sex. I mean, do you actually have to say, yes, I want this, or do you just have to not say no uh interesting things like that also something i've always thought about um in in these cases is that i i think if we have to be honest that there is uh a rape fantasy that can often happen when two people are together whether it's a man and a woman or two men or two women or whatever um that that is something that some people use as an aphrodisiac uh, and so if you acknowledge that that's true, then it, you know, it just can make the line all the more gray uh, between, uh, wh- uh, well, between consent and non-consent. Uh, so it, it's a very, very fraught subject that I think some people think that um, it's always black and white. And I think it's not always black and white. Of course, sometimes it is black and white when someone is beaten. Uh, So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the things that stop short of that. Um, So all of that was in this play. And I, and I appreciate that it dealt with all of that um, because I I think it's worth having that discussion. Um, The uh, cast was excellent. Amaya Braganza, Sebastian de las, de, las, de las Casas, Jason Lee, Ariana Mahalati, Tegan Meredith, Gabriela Ortega, Sarah Maria Rod- Marie, Sarah Marie Rodriguez, and Talia Ryder. Uh, and uh, really excellent work by everyone in this New York Theater Workshop production. I uh, just um, am not... Sh- sure of 
well, my response uh, really, really surprised and interested me. And I'm not sure um, exactly what the takeaway uh, is that was, was intended by the playwright and the directors. Hmm. So, uh, Peter, are you heading out to see this anytime soon? Yeah. Yeah, I will be seeing it this week. So, uh, and, All right. Uh, so I'm interested to hear uh, another take on this. It uh, seems like a very complex uh, subject. And mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. So James, was your question just about the three directors? Yeah, I was. I was. Con- I'm always concerned when I see two directors now, three directors. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And if there's a cohesive vision, so. Uh, but it seems like they've achieved that. Uh, well, no. Well, no, not really. But um, but I'm not sure how much of that was the playwriting and how much of the was the direction. Yeah. Yeah. We so good that, point. Do we? we yeah. Never know that. Yeah. <laughs> and is it is it sort of like three different movements? I, I think this is just a hundred minutes, no intermission, right? Or oh, not three. No, I mean not three movements. If you're no, if you're suggesting it was split up that way, no. I can't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, it, it could be. <laughs> you know, who knows? We just don't know. Uh, so uh, we'll talk about it again next week after okay. Peter gets a chance to see it. All right. So that's uh, How to Defend Yourself at New York Theatre Workshop. It's uh, running through April 2nd. So you have a couple of weeks left to go see that. Uh, Michael and Peter got over to the Hudson Theatre to see uh, Jessica Chastain sitting in a chair on a stage <laughs> in a doll's house. So, uh, Peter, why don't you get us started on this? Yes, indeed. She does sit on a chair. She's sitting on a chair when the show starts, uh, before the show starts. There she is when you you come right into the theater, and she's already there, and she's on a turntable, and she's wheeling around. Not at a high speed. Uh, we don't have to worry about her. But <laughs> but nevertheless, um, it is a situation that we don't expect to see when we see a doll's out. And you you can't really expect to see very much here that you see in the average production of a dollhouse, which is going to thrill some people and it's going to frustrate others. I'd almost go so far to say if you don't know what happens in a dollhouse, you might very well be confused because this is by Jamie, the direction is by Jamie Lloyd, who is becoming famous slash notorious, um, sort of like the non-musical John Doyle of his uh, time in um, doing unorthodox stagings. And uh, he did it with Cyrano de Bergerac, which, as I mentioned, um, my girlfriend Linda left after 12 minutes. And um, he did The Seagull in London, where Linda stayed. Um, It it was much clearer um, what was going on there. This is um, somewhere in between. and um, But A Doll's House is such an enormously great play that you really feel terrible that um, it's been, I do anyway, that it's been deconstructed in this way. I would have liked to have seen this um, in a conventional staging. Lord knows we've had plenty of those, even in my own lifetime, but still, um, Jessica Chastain is pretty good. I was worried at the beginning she wasn't going to be good because um, she has a strength in the beginning that you usually don't see with Nora's. Nora's, after all, um, the dutiful housewife, uh, almost uh, the June Cleaver of her ear, if you will, <laughs> um, but sillier, uh, usually sillier, um, exuberant, usually. This uh, Jessica's has, Jane has more of an edge, and I guess it can be defended in the fact that she is going to walk out at the end of the play. I don't think I'm spoiling anything for anybody. But um, anyway, you know, there we are. Uh, she's, she's stronger than usual. And um, after a while... I said, okay. Um, I didn't for the first few sentences, but I said, okay. Um, 
So uh, Ariane Moyad, um, a wonderful actor, um, uh, Torvald is her husband, and he has a wonderful strength and uh, quite good. I think the cast is very good, um, but there are strange uh, staging uh, situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have a situation where uh, one person is sitting behind her, facing the back wall while he's speaking. Now, t- to be fair, the sound is excellent. Excellent. I mean, here's a case where, um, you know, we usually don't talk about sound, um, you know, basically because it doesn't occur to us uh, to mention it. But Ben Ringham and Max Ringham, I don't know if they're brothers or father and son, but terrific sound. And you need it with this production, especially where a guy is sitting behind Jessica Chastain, facing the back wall. You never see his face during the scene where he's talking about his demands. And uh, it's that type of staging, you know, I mean. People move chairs around a lot. People used to mock Grand Hotel for moving around chairs. There aren't as many, but there's uh, just as much movement here. And um, so anyway, the play, of course, retains its power even today because um, Lord knows there are still marriages today, which um, certainly fall under this category. Um, So uh, there's lots of talk, too, about the fact that when Nora walks out the door, uh, because she doesn't walk out the door here what she does here is walk out of the theater and a lot of people have been saying um gee at my performance people laughed they did it mine too um because literally the back wall of the theater goes (laughs) up and she's out there on um, 45th street and you know i they make a big point at the beginning of the show to show the number 1879 it's flashed on not flashed in the sense of on and off it is on the back wall 1879 and you know the wall goes up and you see cars you know you see people dressed conventionally i guess if you want an autograph from jessica chastain just show up at the end of the show because she's going to be out there um you don't have to wait at the stage door she's going to be right there at the on 45th street so (laughs) um so it's impossible not to laugh i think at that uh, because it's an anachronism a strange type of anachronism but that's what it is because they didn't have cars in 1879 and people didn't dress this way they also didn't have a museum of broadway (laughs) yeah right you can see that maybe (laughs) who knows maybe the museum of broadway is a sponsor let's check um boy if i had the time i would look at all the producers but i don't have time because there are so many one of whom by the way is jessica chastain so obviously she uh, really wanted to do this and um and i'm glad she is doing it um so uh i'm mixed bag but um when it's good it's good and when it's um not it's ludicrous (laughs) okay so that is uh doll's house michael what did you think about this production well first of all i wasn't sure if we were gonna you know mention the ending or consider it a a spoiler but i know i know yeah all right but uh, a a lot of people a lot of people have yeah have already spoiled it. Um, but since you did mention it, I, I guess what it's supposed to be, I see what you're saying about the anachronism, but that actually didn't bother me at all because, because I she's t- walking into the future, walking into the modern world. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Which is kind of what, uh, interestingly, what they tried to do in uh, my fair lady at Lincoln center. Right. Mm-hmm. But there, you know, in comparison that that pales to this because she was just walking up the aisle in the theater. <laughs> uh so they really they this director really uh up one up to them on that didn't he <laughs> uh um i really uh you mentioned the sound and that's the main thing i want to focus on because this 
is the most extraordinary aspect of this production, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it's very unconventional in in many ways, as Peter has mentioned. The, um, uh, there, there is, aside from everything else, there are no props, which you might say, well, you know, so what? But there's there's all these props that are part of the plot, uh, specifically uh, a letter. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's all this talk of the letter, which you never see, even when one person says to another, here is this letter, you know, um, that said, I, I mean, I didn't find it hard to follow because I know the play so well. And I've seen mm-hmm. so many, so many uh, conventional productions. I, I cannot say if someone who had never seen it would be uh although actually the person i went to with believe yeah. it or not had never seen a production of, of yeah. a toss out and he said he loved it and he had no problem so that's one person's opinion um i uh think that well yeah the most extraordinary thing to me is not only uh were there situations as peter mentioned where one person uh sitting in back of Nora and facing towards the back of the stage for the entire scene. And by the way, that person was Okirete Onaudawan, who was at the uh, center of that big controversy with Natasha Pierre uh, and the Great Comet. So that just for a point of information there. Um, But not only was he facing uh, upstage, but the entire cast for the entire show speaks in a very, very naturalistic way, uh, with no attempt to uh, project uh, to the to the theater, uh, you know, to the back wall as they would normally in a production of a play, even if it's uh, a straight play uh, with, uh, well, even even if it was a straight play with normal miking. But what you have here is, of course, you have body mics, and they literally speak like they talk like this. This is how they talk throughout the show, almost throughout the show. Um, there's a point at the end where uh, some of, where uh, that scene uh, between Nora and her husband, where uh, they both it gets very animated, and particularly the hu- husband Ariane Moyed starts to shout at her. Uh, but other than that, it's uh, that, I'm telling you the whole the whole play. They're talking like this. Mm. And, you know, uh, but what it did was, uh, so that sound is then amplified to the point where you can hear every word, but you still mm-hmm. feel like you have to really listen. And so this was the quietest audience I have mm-hmm. ever heard for any theater production mm-hmm. anywhere. And um, you could hear a pin drop, literally. And thank God there were no cell phones. At the performance mm. that I went to, because that would have absolutely ruined everything. So I think that that one thing uh, was so extraordinary that it really was a revelation to me. Uh, I've always had issues with this play because it's so old, and and some of the uh, some of the well-made play aspects of it are very very clunky and you know, coincidences and things of that sort. Uh, but I think along with the rest of the world, I've always, you know, easily forgiven all of those flaws, if they are flaws, because of um, the, the the message, you know, which is so important about women's rights and women's liberation uh, and the way women used to be treated by their husbands uh, and which is no longer considered acceptable. Thank God. Uh, so I really, really loved it for that. 
uh, aside from everything else about the production that I might have questioned and little staging bits and the fact that there were no props and no and no sets and um, also uh, the lighting is is very dim. I mean, the, the actors are well lit, but the area around them is very dark. So you get the impression that you're like looking through a tunnel, you know, <laughs> uh, and that that also uh, causes you to listen all the more all the more uh, intently. Um, so I'm having seen so many conventional productions of this play. I was very happy with this one. I could understand why uh, if you had not uh, ever seen a production or have only maybe seen one or two that you might not like it as much but i i thought it was for my purposes <laughs> i thought it was really excellent i uh, do, do you guys notice uh, is it just me that the correlation between those very uh quiet productions are related to film and television actors uh. <laughs> well, I hadn't until you said that. Um, but Jessica Chastain, we should mention uh, her, her last Broadway outing was a very unfortunate production of The Heiress that was, in my opinion, was ruined by the director. Uh, uh, but she uh, so I think, um, you know, I don't remember if she was a producer of that one, but I think maybe that might explain why she was a producer of this one. <laughs> Credit where it's due. A lot of people who got a reception as she did would say, I'm never going to Broadway again. Exactly. And so exactly. credit where it's due. Yeah. So the heiress was a Moises Kaufman Correct. Uh, production. And it doesn't look like she was listed as a producer here. Yeah, um, I'm not surprised. Yeah. But uh, it's unfortunate that was her Broadway debut therefore negating her from getting a Theater World Award. Yes, indeed. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So that is A Doll's House. It uh, was extended. It's uh, playing through June 10th right now, uh, conveniently just a couple of days after the Tony Awards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. By the way, the uh, cast page in the playbill opposite the cast page is a huge one page ad for Adrian Warren in the room in room, mm. which is now uh, canceled, not happening. Yeah. Mm. So that, you know, you have to wonder if uh, the playbill got paid for that ad, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> good point. Mm-hmm. Good point. Yeah. That's so, uh, yeah, the room canceled this week. Uh, uh, a large, um, uh, block of money, did not come through uh, the lead producers, and uh, two of the three lead producers dropped out, leaving Hunter Arnold holding the bag, which was unfortunate. Mm. Hunter Arnold had a rough season here, and not not anything. It just coincidentally related to him. He's he's been the uh, the beacon of light in uh, a rough sea. So. Michael, you headed over to the Chain Theater to see this goddamn house, so tell us about it. <laughs> really, really interesting, very compelling play um, by Matthew McLaughlin, directed by Ella Jane New, uh, and starring Sashi Parker. Oh, who, really? Yes, daughter of Shirley MacLaine, who I was aware of 
slightly before this, but I had never actually seen her in anything. Oh, no. The uh, reason I, I'm astonished is because um, my girlfriend, Linda, is a literary agent. She sold her memoir, Lucky Me, um, which did not make Shirley MacLaine very happy. Yeah. And uh, the friend who I went and saw this with um, the next day, I saw her and she was carrying around that book, oh, really? <laughs> mm, which she had. So you can tell mm. Linda that there was at least one sale sale. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Sashi uh, was actually phenomenal, excellent, superb in this show. I um, I was taken aback because, as I say, I didn't really know her well before this. She looks and sounds yeah, she and does. <laughs> very, very, very much yeah. like her mother and also has a lot of, I would say, the same mannerisms, mm-hmm. um, at least as employed for this role. Of uh, She plays a woman named Angie, uh, who is quite a mess, uh, to put it bluntly. And I guess you could say literally as well as figuratively, because the issue is that one of the issues is that she's a hoarder. And she is living in her ha- her home alone, her house, and uh, she is losing the house because, uh, well, there's some discussion as to exactly why she's losing it. She she keeps claiming that she did make the payments, uh, but it seems that that's a lie, and and there's some question about you know whether proving whether or not she made the payments and and stuff like that, um, and so. Uh, her two sons arrive to help her clean out the house, which they have to do in just a few days now uh, because before she has to be out. Uh, and, uh, and they, they do mention at one point that actually uh, they're, they've been told that anything that's left there will just be destroyed, you know, or confiscated. So they think, well, maybe we can just leave a lot of the stuff here. Uh-huh. Uh, but the problem is that because the mother is a hoarder, she's one of those people who starts screaming, mm. you know, and have a breakdown mm-hmm. if somebody says, well, let's throw out this hockey stick, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that's that's one issue here and then all of this stuff comes to light about the family history it turns out that um both of the the sons uh started out as actors uh but now one of them is now has now become a a wedding photographer uh which he does in in partnership with his wife um who we eventually see show she eventually shows up and the other son um that son that I just mentioned is named Jacob, played by Kirk Gustowski. And the other son, Danny, um, he started as an actor as well, but he's now a playwright. Uh, and he's played by Gabriel Rizdal. Uh, so, and then the other ca- two characters in this play are Hannah, who um, uh, was the teaching assistant for uh the the central character of angie played by sashi parker she was her teaching assistant uh because she's a teacher and uh also um is now kind of her uh, home health aid uh, sort of just helping around help her do do things around the house and then the final character as i mentioned is jacob's wife ali played by christina perry um so uh this was i think a really very well written play uh that you can see why Sashi Parker or any actress of a certain age would want to play this character because it's a very, very uh, rich, uh, flamboyant character. Uh, 
and very complicated woman. Uh, and she's uh, through almost all of the plays, she's garrulous, which I, I thought, well, is that the right word? And then I looked it up and it is. <laughs> it means uh, <laughs> excessively talkative, especially on trivial matters. She just doesn't shut up. And sometimes you just want to smack her. So there comes a point in this play where somebody finally, you know, screams at her to shut the fuck up, basically. And the audience applauds. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see why, you know, an actress would. But then not only that, um, Angie, at the very, very end, after after a big blow up, um, she has a, a, a seeming transition where after being this annoying, insufferable, garrulous, constantly talking, annoying uh, uh, woman through the whole play, she suddenly seems to have a moment of uh, epiphany and realizes, uh, you know, how bad her situation is and, and that she maybe really has been a very bad mother for these two guys, which they pretty much come out and tell her. Um, so she has... That scene, which she played beautifully, uh, she dropped her pitch. She she dropped her volume. Uh, the the mannerisms all fell away, uh, and all all of the quirks in her body language and all of that. Uh, and she had a, a beautiful little monologue about that. But then there was a final twist after that. Um, so I I think that really that we should keep an eye on this author. Because uh, I I had not heard of him before, but I thought this was a very very well written play, uh, directed uh, written again by Matthew McLaughlin. Um, I did think that unfortunately that both of the sons that there were many flaws in their performance. So I can't I, I'm not sure if that should be um, attributed to the director again, Ella Jane New, uh, because they were very good in. In certain moments, but each of the sons, and to me, when when an actor is is excellent in in certain moments and then really not good in others, that might indicate poor direction. Uh, it's not always easy to tell, of course, uh, but I think that might be the case here. Um, I will say also that um, uh, the brothers looked nothing like brothers, and I happen to notice <laughs> in reading the bios. Um, online that one of them uh kirk gustowski who plays jacob he is the artistic director of the chain theater so maybe uh you know maybe that had something to do with that and maybe it should have been someone else in that role uh but overall i'm I'm really glad i went to this I'm, i'm glad i heard about it and uh that that it's uh, it put this playwright on my radar because he had not been there before. I have six brothers. I I don't look anything like any of them because they're ugly. Because <laughs> they're ugly. Six <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right. So that's uh, this goddamn house at the chain. It's uh, through April eighth. I'll have a link to that in the show notes, plus a link to Matthew McLaughlin's website, so you can check out his other stuff. Uh and so, Peter, you uh, got a, got your hands on a hot album called Regretting Almost <laughs> Everything, which is a concept album with Beth Level and Jeff Blumenkrantz. So tell us about this uh, concept recording. Should we all rush out and get it? 
Well, I'll tell you, you know, one of the songs, at least, uh, they're all good, by the way, but one of the songs, at least, has become uh, an earworm for me. Um, you know, why do we use the term worm with something that's so pleasant? Why don't we say ear flower or ear mm-hmm. chocolate? Um, you know, but anyway. Um, because it gets in there. It just kind of worms in, you know. <laughs> I get it, but, it's, it, but it should be a pleasant image. Yes. I think of something else that, yes, um, yes, yes. that gets in there that anyway, um, I will say that uh, I, I don't know how this song would really fit in the show, but it's, it's called my mini four and it's about a woman talking about the car she's owned and uh, one uh, after the other. And, and uh, every now that there's a stretch of a lyric um, to rhyme with uh, the word rim, there's the lyric parking on a whim. Well, I'm glad you can park on a whim because I find it very hard to park. But of course, she does indicate that she's in Illinois and she doesn't say Chicago. So maybe it's easier. Anyway, so here's a book and lyric by Lauren Tazlitz and music by Danny Orsetti. And um, I think it's very quite accomplished. This is essentially the grandchild of I Do, I Do, because this is about a marriage and <laughs> regretting almost everything <laughs> that's not quite what happens and i do i do oh yeah they fight there but there's a lot more to it so you you have the um wonderful beginning of a relationship and the the joy of we made kids i would feel better if kids didn't rhyme with did but that's another story um the thing about the car uh there's a song called behind the wheel in which uh, we really find out that the woman um and by the way is her name is um, quite the speedster. Uh, it's mentioned that she says, you know, 65 miles an hour is only a suggestion. And her husband, Clay, <laughs> says, uh, not in the city. So, um, but she <laughs> does seem to be a, a hell on wheels, if you will. And um, and I guess that's why she really enjoys um, her, her cars. Though, frankly, some of the things she says about these minis that she buys would indicate that she would not continue buying them. But that's another story, too. Um, they have mainline Philly sex, meaning awfully proper sex. And that's going to be a problem <laughs> as time goes on. Does she want to have an affair? Well, there's a song called No, I Don't. Yes, I Do. So that tells you about that. But suddenly, uh, there they are. And uh, what's happening? Well, um, they're they're grandparents. So they've stayed together, um, at least to some degree. And um, they're very proud of their granddaughter, Elle. And Beth Lovell has a nice song about that. There's a very funny song called The Baby Likes Me Best, which indeed Clay believes. um, The Baby Likes Me Best. But, you know, the thing that really struck out at me here is is and again this is very personal but there was a line in one of the songs that was something that i felt when i became a father and james i dare say that you felt this too um uh, there i was in the waiting room they came out the nurse came out and said you have a son i walked in the room and and great you know i wanted a boy this will be terrific fine good but i wasn't prepared for the first moment i looked at him and to me, that's when I learned what love at first sight was. And that's mentioned here specifically, love at first sight when you see a kid, uh, a newborn baby. Um, in this case, it's a grandchild, but still love at first sight. And so that really resonated with me. And um, and I dare say, James, with you, that you uh, understood that too. Uh, so... Um, Aside from that, though, you know, I don't think you have to be a parent or or even married uh, to appreciate much of the worth of this show. So uh, you can get this at regrettingalmostevertything.com. And um, it's uh, very contemporary music. And um, let's see if you feel that um, my mini four is uh, ear chocolate, as it was to me. (laughs) 
As uh, Peter mentioned, they have a website, uh, regardingeverything.com. I have a link to that in the show notes. Plus, they have a, uh, a number of videos on YouTube, which I'll link to in the show notes as well. So you can actually take a listen to some of these things and uh, see the great Beth Level and Jeff Brimlecrantz as well. <laughs> so... Uh, the last thing uh, for our review section in the morning, this morning, is that, uh, Peter, you got to Westfield, New Jersey, to see a high school production of Sunday in the Park with George. And Does this I was sound able, impossible? <laughs> I, I was able to find on the Westfield, New Jersey uh, high school <laughs> website um, a photograph of, uh, uh, of the production, and I can see a whole little orchestra in front of the stage as well. So tell us about this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, this is Daniel Devlin. Uh, uh, I discovered him some years ago um, because they were doing Anyone Can Whistle, and I wanted to write an article about Anyone Can Whistle for one of the websites I was writing for, and uh, so I thought this would be a good way to... And it was phenomenal. First off, the orchestra, he does have an orchestra which mixes kids and adults. And um, it sounded exactly like the original cast album. Exactly. Except the voices were better from the kids. They were. I mean, you know, Angela Lansbury has a nice theater voice, but this girl um, had a tremendous uh, voice. And so true, the people playing the Lee Remick and Harry Guardino parts. So um, so I, I was so taken with this that I grabbed a kid at intermission and said, take me to this director right now. I can't wait till the end of the show to tell him how great he is. So, um, so I've seen a few others there. I saw you're in town there. I saw Follies there. He <laughs> did Follies with Children, and it worked wonderfully i mean it's just amazing what this guy accomplishes well anyway here's sunday in the park with george i mean this is a tough show to do you know I'm, first off scenically what are you going to do with uh, the painting and the trees flying in remember that uh, the trees fly in and wasn't it fun when um when the tree flew in and and george says i hate this tree and the tree disappears the audience loved that they were with it uh, full house and you know the high school auditoriums are big but uh, Full House, and they loved it. The cheers were amazing, which was really great to hear. Um, so th- they built the sets. They, 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 they replicated the paintings. They replicated that translucent one with George's behind it painting while um, daughter's talking about going to the Follies. They did that. I mean, um, the kids in the bathing unit, you know, when they, the slides on, um, they had that. Um, they had the chroma loom. Um, they had a, a that worked. I mean, uh, well, except when it's not supposed to. But it was <laughs> incredible what these what these people did. I mean, and and they built it themselves. The costumes too. It. I mean, needless to say, you have to have period costumes for that first act, in a little of the second. So, uh, and there they were. All right. Well, you're fine. So we've all talked about shows with great production values that didn't turn out to be so good beyond that. Good Lord, I mean, really. Here's Evan Leone, who, by the way, whose daddy we're going to see soon at J2 Productions as Sam Craig and Women of the Year. Isn't that something? So um, there's good genes in this family because Evan Leone is phenomenal as George. Now, think of all this patter song stuff he has to do with the red, 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 blue, blue, blue. Uh, and in the in the second act, uh, putting it together isn't easy to uh, do, except he made it look easy. So there was that. Bella Jarecki um, as Dot and Marie. I mean, she has to age terribly in the second act and, and be um, befuddled and what have you. She, she did 
phenomenal work there too. I, it was really something um, to really see um, the the lickety split lyrics that she has too were, were, were just wonderfully delivered. So um, I I was so impressed with that. I was also, by the way, going back to Leone for a second because um, he really got the the meaning out of the one of the most important lines in the show to me, which when uh, George is complaining, and I'll put that in quotation marks, um, that women he's known, they have never understood, followed by, and no reason why they should. You know, it's so nice that he can acknowledge that, that he's being demanding, uh, that he is centered on his work, and and he, he understands that women don't have to necessarily feel that way. So, um, so that was terrific. You know, I mean, I, everybody was wonderful. I have to point out, um, Joey Gamba as, as Jules, um, you know, it, getting that imperious, uh, feeling of, um, knowing everything about art and yet not being so sure after all. You know, he's not a hundred percent sure that George is on the wrong track. And you could see that, um, dichotomy there wonderfully. A girl named Rachel Clemens, the nurse, really made the most out of that moment about, you know, whatever the lyric is about tending his mother is perfectly fine. It pays for the one who's attending to mine, whatever that lyric is. <laughs> she took center stage and she grabbed, but they were all good. They were all good. They were all so wonderful. So, I mean, I'm telling you, it seems so bizarre. I mean, yesterday we had a drama desk um, meeting. Uh, and everybody's talking about what they're going to see that night, you know, uh, the Doll's House, you know, uh, um, Bad Cinderella, whatever, you know, so on and so forth. And there I am going to Westfield High School. But as they say in My Fair Lady, there's no place else on earth that I would rather be. And um, it was that impressive. So I did a tally. I, I've kept meticulous <laughs> records of seeing shows since I started way back when. And I have seen 272 high school productions. This is easily the best of the bunch. By the way, in second, third, and fourth place are the other Daniel Devlin productions. So um, really something. He's great. <laughs> All right. On a related note, are either of you aware that there was another production of Sunday in the Park uh, that just closed recently uh, at Theater 2020 in Brooklyn? You know, I was set to go. And unfortunately, somebody got sick and I just couldn't fit it in. Yes, I was aware of that. And that's a very good group. I feel very bad I couldn't get to it, but I had promised myself to other shows, so I couldn't. You know, but um, had they performed, um, uh, I think it was March 16th. Um, no, it was earlier than that. I would have been there. Well, interestingly enough, the person who went on for the person who got sick was Albert Neltrop, who was in my Bernstein show. Oh, you, oh did you and go? He, uh, no, I didn't because I didn't know. I you mean, know, yeah, uh, sure. actually, I somehow did not know about this production. I didn't get the press release. So I uh -huh. checked with them and I'm on their list now. Uh, but uh, I think I, even if I had known, uh, I, I wouldn't have been able to make it for him. I would have loved to, to see him in it, obviously. Uh, sure. Yeah. All right. So that wraps it up for our uh, reviews of this morning. One quick uh, item in the news that we wanted to talk about this morning is that, Michael, we had updated news on the release of the first Wicked movie. Yes. Yeah. Um, hold on. Sorry. <laughs> Wicked Park 1 has been yeah, moved up one something. month from Christmas to Thanksgiving in 2024. Yes, it says, um, uh, this is from Variety, a Wicked 
Universal's big screen adaptation of the hit Broadway musical is landing in theaters on November 27, 2024, a month ahead of schedule. The movie was initially scheduled to open on December 25th, but the studio felt it would be better positioned around Thanksgiving compared to Christmas. So uh, Matt Tamanini, who uh, follows the entertainment and film and television industry much closer than I do, says that this is really a good thing because it re- it means that uh, Universal thinks that Wicked is going to have uh, a broad appeal and be a commercial success and will run through run in run in the theaters through the from Thanksgiving through uh, January, right, right, right. Uh, versus just being released on Christmas and not have you know we saw West Side Story got released right on Christmas and had not great uh, box office appeal, and then went to streaming and did pretty well on streaming. Mm. Mm. So, um, you know, uh, hopefully no good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> no one mourns the wicked. <laughs> That's right. That's so. <laughs> what, what's Glenda's first line? It's, it's good to see me. <laughs> it's good to see something, me, isn't it? It's good to isn't see it something me, like it? that. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah. If not exactly. All right, so that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to our trivia and our musical moment, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link that we each and every time we have a new episode of this week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. You can support Broadway Radio by uh, subscribing to us through Patreon at patreon.com slash broadwayradio or broadwayradio.com slash Patreon and support all the different podcasts and work that we do all throughout the year. As we mentioned at the top of the show, we're entering our 14th year and we are thousands of shows in, so we're not going anywhere. Uh, you can also listen to us on iHeartRadio, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts. Uh, contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, including uh, those videos from Regretting Almost Everything, uh, some pictures of Je- Jessica Chastain in Doll's House, and all sorts of other stuff. So, Oh, there's also a video from uh, Dear World if you want to get over there and check that out as well. Mm. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? What composer has seen every one of his Tony-winning musicals made into a TV special, as well as another that didn't even get a Best Musical nomination? Name all four musicals, too. Well, Charles Strauss's three Tony-winning musicals, Bye Bye Birdie, Applause, and Annie, were all, all made into TV specials. It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman, which wasn't nominated, was too. Steve Bell was the first to get it, followed by Juliet Green, Josh Israel, Brigadude, Arthur Robinson, Greg Christensen, Sean Logan, Isaac Blevins, and Tony Janicki, who said he was late in answering because he was in the bathroom. Boy, if that isn't <laughs> TMI, I don't know what is. Anyway, <laughs> this week's question. The first time the world saw this musical, written by a very famous team, by the way, they saw it set about 700 or so miles from where it would take place when the second version came about. The third version returned to the original location. The first and third versions repeated the same song that told of the locale. 
the second one also had a song that mentioned where it took place. What's the property? What were the settings? What were the names of the songs? Okay, if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadradio.com. If you have the answer, and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. Uh, Peter, for Tony Janicki, I mean, he, he answered yeah. on Monday morning. <laughs> So, <laughs> what can I say? I get that checked out. So and it was and some I fiber it, to the diet. And I think it wasn't his first answer. We're <laughs> <So, laughs> just picking on you, Tony. No, it we wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, Michael. What do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, our opener is the overture from the original Broadway cast recording of Dear World, featuring, uh, among others, that that title song, which Jerry Herman said he never wanted to write. Uh, but there are lots of <laughs> other better songs in the overture as well. Um, and our closer is in honor of the great John Kander, who turned 96 yesterday. Uh, and incredibly... <laughs> is still working on Broadway, mm-hmm. uh, as, mm-hmm. as I'm sure all of our listeners know, uh, working on the new New York, New York, uh, which apparently, um, other than the title and a couple of the songs and some of the character names, is going to be a very, very, very different piece from the movie Blood of the same title. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm with you on that. <laughs> Um, so our closer is actually, uh, uh, I was trying to think of, you know, how do you choose one song from John Kander? But mm-hmm. I thought, well, why don't we use New York, New York, but not one of the more famous versions. So I uh, picked the New York City Gay Men's Chorus recording of that song from their first album. I think it was their first album, or actually it might have been their second. They had a Christmas album early on, uh, released in 1984. Uh, and uh, this was before I joined the chorus. So don't try to listen uh, for me among those 150 voices, because you won't hear me on it. But mm-hmm. um, but that song was a was a big hit. Uh, for the chorus for many years and may still be. I, I haven't kept up with them so much, although they actually have um, concerts this weekend at the Skirball Center. And there's one more this evening. If you if you listen to this podcast and you run right out and get a ticket, uh, you can see that. Uh, but they're doing three concerts a year now anyway, so um, you can catch up with them at Gay Pride uh, if you miss this one, or at, uh, they do a holiday concert every year. But um, yeah, John Kander uh, and Fred Ebb were were very good for the chorus in their early years by giving them this, this hit. <laughs> uh, so I hope you enjoy this choral version of that great song. Okay, so on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.